Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Ich verstehe nicht. It's Holy Madness with different intro music. You're listening to the Jerusalem episode, episode 5. Of Holy Madness. What is a Jerusalem episode? I guess we'll all find out. I'm Tzvi. And I'm Mer Simcha. And we are coming at you from Jerusalem. Where we live. On the line of disputed territory. About a couple hundred meters over it, actually. Those of you who will look at a map. On Google Maps especially, which takes great care to put in the 1949 armistice lines, there's a box. The line splits and creates an empty area that Hmm. looks like a box. It's directly south of the old city, those of you who care to look. And I live in that box. Why is it a box? Well, when they called the lines, this mountain was contested. And officially, it was meant to remain a no-man's land. Although, Ah. practically, no man's land meant it went to Jordan. Mm. We are actually on the mountain where the Six-Day War broke out in Jerusalem. This mountain also, and this is not such common knowledge, but those of you who have ever been here and have visited the Israel Museum have seen a bone box, an ossuary, that is inscribed with the name Yeshua ben Yosef, otherwise known as Jesus, son of Joseph, And it was found in a cave three flights under my apartment. But it's a little interesting that this is where we are and this is where we're recording from because while we didn't intend to take this podcast out on the road, in a way, we are broadcasting from the location of the first thing that we want to discuss because those of you who keep up with the news know that Jerusalem has been in the news lately. And the most recent kerfuffle involved President Trump announcing that the view of the United States government is that Jerusalem is Jewish. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He also recognized this as our capital. Yes, uh, he he was saying it in terms of Jerusalem being the capital of Israel and and all that. But this caused a a large outcry, as you know, because the truth is, uh, according to many people, including some of you who are no doubt listening and your blood pressure is starting to skyrocket, Uh, Jerusalem is a contested area. Now, the truth is, Jerusalem was separated once. Kind of down the middle, matter of fact. Yes, Jerusalem was a divided city. It was divided, and it's actually really funny because today, the no-man's land area that divided the city is now one of the main traffic arteries of the city because, well, you had all this open space when you got rid of the barbed wire. Yeah. So it became... An avenue instead of a street. My friend Eliyahu Knush, I think his grandfather, uh, grew up right along that line. And when they were playing ball, they would regularly lose balls over the line into no man's land. And then, you know, go into no man's land and be careful to dodge Jordanian bullets in order to get Yeah, I was going to say, I know people who grew up there and it seems that Occasionally, some of the bored Jordanian soldiers would take target practice through their windows at, like, pots hanging over the the stove. They wouldn't shoot people because that would be an act of war, but shooting a knob off off your stove, that's just fun. So Jerusalem being a divided or united city is very much a hot button political issue, both domestically. Because obviously we're the first divided city ever. Right. Right, except we're not, and we'll get to that in a moment. Don't you mean that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the only land conflict anywhere in the world today? Depends which newspaper you read, but for most people, yeah. Uh, And we'll touch on that in a moment, too, surprisingly. But, look, the the thing is this. Obviously, we're, we're being sarcastic and... You know, we're not pretending to be objective about this issue. At least I'm not. There are a lot of currently divided cities on the planet today, and quite a few of them are due to border disputes, and none of them get the attention that my hometown does. So we have decided to devote an entire podcast to informing you about other divided cities in obscure locations. They're doing what? (laughs) But we're not. 
So obviously the first example of a divided city that comes to mind it, it, historically is Berlin. Uh, you have the famous Berlin airlift. You have Kennedy butchering his German. Ich bin ein Berliner. Um, and, and you have, you know, the, all the pictures of the Berlin Wall and then that powerful moment, which was so neatly captured by television spontaneously. There was a spontaneous outpouring of television camera crews that just happened <laughs> to be there. Uh, but the wall came down. So I was two years old when the Berlin Wall came down, so I don't remember it. But that's that's an obvious example of a divided city. It was divided between East and West Germany. But the truth is, slightly, I, I do remember uh, the following. I was old enough then. But in 1993 or so, uh, the whole world felt the need to drop like 4,000 tons of ordinance on Bosnia, Herzegovina, the Serb Republic which is not Serbia, uh, Yugoslavia, or what used to be called Yugoslavia. There's all this crazy uh, ethnic fighting there. Everyone took sides. Uh, everybody committed genocide. It was, it was a great party. I remember a lot of mentions of Tomahawk cruise missiles. Right, yeah, lots yeah. of cruise missiles. Everything. No, but it was like the, they had to mention it was the Tomahawk. The like they didn't just say, we launched cruise missiles at some, you know, genocidal maniac. It was like... Tomahawk cruise missiles were launched. Like, I had to specify what kind, as if... Guess which country developed Tomahawk cruise <laughs> missiles. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's one thing. Today, 48 of 109 municipalities that ended up on the border of all these new states, Bosnia, Herzegovina... Uh, Serb Republic, former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia, etc. Slovakia, Slovenia, this whole area. 48 of 109 municipalities on this border are divided between countries. Why and were they, they divided? Because a lot of them was just that's where the front lines were and the rest of the border drawing was done with careful consideration of who was there. The next example of a divided city I wanted to bring up and I am obviously butchering this name due to not speaking Slovakian or Ukrainian, is Velke Slemens, or Mali Selmenci, which is on the Slovakian-Ukrainian border. I'm, I'm reading this off Wikipedia because, honestly, it's hilarious and it speaks for itself. In 1946, a house which lay exactly on the border was demolished with all the other objects in the way, and a six-meter-high palisade wall with watchtowers and border patrols was installed for the next 60 years crossing between the two parts was prohibited to meet with relatives on the other side locals had to first travel 13 kilometers to Ujgorod for visas to Czechoslovakia if their visa application which took at least two weeks was successful they would then travel 80 kilometers south to the nearest border crossing that's about 63 miles or so so it previously would have been a, let's say, 20 to 500 meter uh, trip. Now became somewhere between 160 to 200 kilometers uh, long each way. And that would take a month or so to organize. Now, those who tried to shout over the wall and save themselves the... Long distance phone call. Well, the, the trip... Hey, Aunt Joni! ...were penalized... On both sides. So this resulted in conversations, sending messages, and news in the form of songs, which would be sung very loudly near the border. Elderly citizens of these two towns were actually, over the course of their lives, elderly citizens were citizens of Austria-Hungary, Czechoslovakia, the Kingdom of Hungary, the Soviet Union, and are now citizens of Slovakia and thus the European Union, or Ukraine, and most of them have never left the village that they were born in. Wow. Another great example, uh, and this is a bit of a joke, is Texarkana, which is on the Arkansas-Texas border. <laughs> they're actually two different cities because of the state line. There are two mayors and there are two sets of city officials, but because it's one city, they share a federal building, a courthouse, a jail, a post office. Laufenberg and Rheinfelden, on the Swiss-German border were each actually one town until Napoleon declared the Rhine River to be the Swiss-German border and now are two separate localities and two separate countries uh, even though they're a small 
walking bridge distance apart. Another divided city is called Pello, which is on the Finnish-Swedish border. But this is north of the Arctic Circle, and it's more an issue of, for moose than man. <laughs> Another great example, and there are actually many of these, is a town called Gorlitz, which our religious Jewish followers may recognize the name because there is a Hasidic dynasty from there. Gorlitz is in Germany, Gorlitz in Polish, but they, they share a town council. And they were obviously split in 1945. That's the mm -hmm. obvious reason. Since the year 1002, this town has belonged to the following political entities. The Duchy of Poland, the Kingdom of Poland, the Margraviate of Meissen, the Duchy of Bohemia, the Kingdom of Bohemia, the Margraviate of Brandenburg, the Duchy of Jawor, Kingdom of Bohemia, Kingdom of Hungary, Kingdom of Bohemia, Electorate of Saxony, then Poland-Saxony, then the Electorate of Saxony, then Poland-Saxony, then the Electorate of Saxony, then the Kingdom of Saxony, the Kingdom of Prussia, the German Empire, the Weimar Republic, Nazi Germany, Allied-Occupied Germany, East Germany, and now finally Germany. Whew. Yeah, exactly. Uh, similarly, uh, Frankfurt, not Frankfurt am Main, that people know, which is near the French border, but Frankfurt-Oder which is on the Polish border, which on the other side of the border is called Shubis in Poland, which was also split in 1945 for obvious reasons. Wow, that really stinks for Frankfurt odor. <laughs> That's terrible. Our American followers will know about Nogales by Arizona and El Paso on the U.S. side in Texas and Juarez in Mexico, which are also towns that are divided by... A wall. Fun fact, there is a wall there. Second fun fact, 60% of Nogales, Arizona's sales tax is paid by the average 30,000 per day Mexican tourist shoppers. The Mexicans tour in the U.S. to buy stuff there? Yeah, they just go over the border, do their shopping, and come home. Is it less expensive? What do they buy? The stuff that probably isn't available in Mexico. So for those uh, Trump-thumping, build-the-wall enthusiasts, Nogales, Arizona probably doesn't like your idea. Obviously, another great example is the capital of Cyprus, Nicosia, Nicosia which is actually the capital of technically a two states. A divided capital? Yes. This one is a mirror image of our city. You see, in 1974... Turkey decided to invade Cyprus and took over about 37% of the island, including half of its capital city, at which point it declared North Cyprus to be a state, which conveniently is only recognized by Turkey, hmm. and thus making this capital city, Nicosia, the capital of both quote-unquote states. Why, I would call that disputed territory. Well, that's the funny thing. How many people feel the need to solve the Cypriot conflict? Somehow this doesn't get the same news play as a divided Jerusalem, which is an interesting thing. And so yeah, there are many others. Uh, Narva and Estonia, which is Ivangorod in Russia. You have Gmund in Austria and Velenis in the Czech Republic, Valga in Estonia, Valka in Latvia. You have Zvornik, which is in Bosnia, and Mali Zvornik, which is in Serbia. You have Hili, which is in India, and Bangladesh. They keep the same names for a change. You have Mostar in Herzegovina, and you have East Mostar, which is in the Republika Srpska. And we can keep going, but there are many, many, many divided cities on this planet. And weirdly, none of them get the kind of recognition that we do here in Jerusalem. After the break, let's explore a little bit about why that's the case. Where do we begin the rubble of our sins?
back in the holy city of Jerusalem. It's amazing how that song was written about Pompeii. And it's is, named Pompeii. It's named Pompeii, and it's so apropos to Jerusalem. Mount Vesuvius in Pompeii exploded nine years after the temple was destroyed. And in the Sibylline Oracles, uh, they were put together, one uh, coming as retribution for the other. I happen to like the song. It reminds me of Jerusalem, just from the lyrics that you heard, the city whose walls keep tumbling down. And, uh, and the rubble of our sins. Right. So, but here we are. And uh, we'd left off with the question, uh, why is Jerusalem, of all the divided cities in the world, or contested cities in the world, why is Jerusalem the one where every time a 15-year-old throws a rock at a car, it makes the 8 o'clock news? Well, there's the obvious reason. Well, yeah, I mean, it is a holy city for three different religions. No, it's not. It's sacred to four cultures. Go to crash. Accept the mystery. Okay, Mr. Contrarian, who's the fourth? There's the Jewish quarter, the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarter, and the Armenian quarter. Well, if you're going to be a Mr. Smarty Pants about that, you're only talking about the old city of Jerusalem. You can find far better dividing lines. What, do you want heavenly Jerusalem and earthly Jerusalem? Well, I... Okay, I thought you were talking about something else completely, which is... Residents of this city know that uh, the northern part of the city and the southern part of the city are very, very different. <laughs> Where the north is all uh, what I like to term monochrome religious. You know, everybody's wearing black and white. The buildings are older. The streets are dirtier. It's all ultra-Orthodox. I thought I grew up in the Bible Belt, but this is... <laughs> here the belt is much higher up. It's in the north. Yeah. yeah. This is more like the Bible necktie, I guess. <laughs> And then the southern part of the city is more cosmopolitan, uh, mixed, you know, religious and secular, um, nicer areas, cleaner. More expensive um, parking. Yeah. More expensive everything, really. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one way. And then, of course, there's the, op- the obvious, uh, the one that makes it into the news all the time, East and West Jerusalem, in which East Jerusalem is seen to be uh, an Arab Muslim, Palestinian, pick your favorite pronoun. Whereas the Jewish side, whatever that means, is the West side. I'm fascinated by the highway that runs north from the old city and divides Measharim, the Haredi area, the ultra Orthodox area, on the West side. West side, girls are extra fine. From the hotel strip on <laughs> the east side. Side, side, east side big beautiful looking hotels right never been inside so you walk north on that highway i used to walking to work at hebrew university well the highway that you're mentioning is the dividing line we referenced uh in, in our earlier segment that used to be the barbed wire now became one of right. the main traffic arteries in the city i was actually just reading an article i wish i remembered where where it pointed out, you know, you're used to, when you have Pango, the, the parking meter app, on your phone. So you know, and if you see the signs around the city, you know that Saturdays and Shabbat, there is no paid parking anywhere. It's all free. Right. And Fridays, the paid parking is only until around noon. Right. Well, in East Jerusalem, Friday parking is free, and Saturday parking is only until ah. around noon. Wow. For obvious reasons. But it's the same city. So everybody marks their territory in Jerusalem with parking. If you're lucky enough to get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but it's funny. You're, the way you put it, everybody marks their territory. Because if there's one city in the world where everybody, everybody has felt the need to mark territory. And sent a camera crew there to document it. Right. If not, you know had the foresight to write a 24 book suite of holy books saying that it's yours (laughs) it's it's here this is the place where everybody lays claim to well there's no mention of jerusalem in the quran of course not directly oh you hold by the hadith (laughs) if you don't hold by the hadith what's the point so then what seems to be the good universal solution for jerusalem is make it an international city 
Well, that's been the suggestion since 1947, and it's still a favorite talking point for a lot of the peace process industry where, you know, Jerusalem should be an international city because it's holy to everyone. Yes, I love how everybody of that ilk goes back to that UN resolution as if nothing happened since 1947. I'll tell you, to me, the funny thing is that they say it belongs to everyone. There are many holy cities on this planet, but no one pretends that they belong to everyone. Nobody is sitting there saying that London is mine, even though I'm not an Anglican. Right. Or that Rome is mine, even if I'm not a Catholic. And, and that one's actually a great point. Catholic actually means universal. That's his maybe. But nobody decided to turn Rome into an international city. I mean, they did hit on a two-state solution. What do you mean? Well, I mean, there's Vatican City, which is its own country. <laughs> And then the rest of Rome, which is Italy and its own country. You're right. It's actually divided off with that big wall and huge tourist lines. <laughs> we can all just hope. Oh, and the the Jews who have been there for 2,000 years selling trinkets, crosses, and Marys and things like that, too. You know, <laughs> they're all Jewish. I'm sure they are. Find a niche, sell a product. That's that's our thing, man. That's how it started. We made the Messiah. What is it that you do here? Merchandising. So while Rome has its two-state solution, though, it's not, you know, nobody's sitting there saying it's this holy city that everybody is supposed to have ownership of. Access to, maybe, but ownership of, not. And yet Jerusalem has this thing where everybody feels that they, they own something of it. Oh, that goes way back into the Tanakh, back into the Bible itself. In Sefer Yoshua, in the book of Joshua, where you have all these different kings there, how could you have so many different kings in such a small plot of land? It doesn't make any sense. So the Midrash says that these were basically international delegations from other empires, other nations, that, but everybody staked a claim in the land of Israel. And that continues today, not so much with embassies, which are actually sovereign Not soil. in Jerusalem. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there's, there's this funny thing with the universality, so to speak, of Jerusalem to all people. A few months ago, I had a very interesting conversation with, actually with an, a number of the, the Catholic listeners who wound up eventually encouraging me to do this podcast. Hey guys, thanks. <laughs> and I initiated the discussion by asking what makes Jerusalem a holy city for Christians? That's a good question. What'd they say? Well, it took me a long time to come to that question. I realized I have no clue what it is. It's really funny you say that because it just occurred to me. Brigham Young has a, a plot of land here. Oh, yeah, they do. And the Mormons didn't start until 1850-ish. So for them to, you know, want a piece of Jerusalem is funny to me. But it obviously it goes back through the, the Christian claim to the city, so to speak, and they see themselves as the, I guess, best form of Christianity, the way every sect tends to see themselves in relation to the whole. But what what did these guys, like, what, what was the... So what it, what came out of the discussion was that Christians essentially see Jerusalem as a city which is holy for them because of what happened here. Even though what happened here happened to us. It happened to us, but it has theological significance for them. So that's what makes it holy. But what struck me is that what makes the land of Israel holy for us has nothing to do with what happened here. Not directly. What happened here was it's a, result, a result of right. it being a sacred place for us. So this is a funny uh, this is a funny reaction, I guess. But when you just said, you know, it has theological ramifications and therefore creates this sense of uh, connection to. Funny thing is that's really what goes on in the news. I mean, look, Matty Friedman pointed this out. There are 40 
staff members for the Associated Press in Israel. There are two in Syria. There are none in Yemen. There are more people who died in Yemen and Syria this year than in the entirety of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah. We obviously understand the, the real reason why we've got 40 people here and three people in the other places. That doesn't sell newspapers or online subscriptions, whatever they're up to today. But this does. Even to a, a, an atheist, even to the secular people um, who, who have a horse in this race because kumbaya, campfire, peace among all men. Right, right. The, the funny thing is, is that it's this, you know, they've, they've constructed this, this wonderful narrative. It's such a gripping story. Mm. You have these Jews that were, you know, massacred and butchered and, and then the Holocaust. And then they were like this little David and, and they were surrounded on all sides. And, 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 you know, by pluck and bravery, they, they made their state. And then suddenly the David turns into the Goliath. Right, because of the frailty of humanity and how we enact on others the abuse that we suffered. So now we are the new Nazis and the Palestinians are the new Jews. And Right. Well, Abbas says they're the old Jews. Old Jews, right. Something. And Jesus. Yeah. Jesus was a Palestinian. Right, but they're also the Plishtim, and they're also the Canaanites. Right. Plishtim means invaders. And in he also said Hebrew. that the entirety of the Bible is false, so it's a good thing he's using it as his source text. But regardless... Enough... Consistency is not important here. Well... For him. Yeah, well, he's remarkably consistent. Everything he says is contradictory. But... You know, enough enough uh, good-natured poking so fun at Abbas. basically you're saying that there's there's a strong narrative which a news outlet can give over about Jerusalem and Israel, whereas you go into Syria and it's just this it's just the cluster That's of the thing. It's trouble just... and all these different factions and nobody can make heads or tails of it. And... No, but it's more than that. It's just a local thing. It doesn't speak to the, the human condition. Mm. It doesn't speak to, you know, the universality of the human experience. And also there are not good hotels in Syria. Right. That's the obvious thing. I'm, that... I, I'm sorry. There are good hotels in Syria, but... Only one floor is left of them. Yeah. <laughs> but look, it's an obvious point. I mean, when you're a when you're a reporter, you build your reputation based on the, you know, frontline reports that you make. When you're when you're when you've spent 5 years uh, at the front lines of a conflict, you are Mr. Trusted News Source. And and the thing is, you don't have to work here cuz you can write the same damn article every day and just switch the place names. And, you know, switch maybe two or three of the politicians as they're voted in and out of office, at least on the Israeli side. Abbas is in year 13 of his four-year term. And then, so you can do this in a half hour, send it off on the wire, and go to the beach. And they're nice beaches, good-looking girls, a lot of Western amenities, if not all of them at this point. Easier to get booze here than in the Muslim world. And yet you're, you're Mr. Conflict Zone reporter... I mean, look, this is slightly off topic, but it's worth it's worth pointing out. We, we you know, Trump just had his big announcement. We mentioned that at, at, at the opening segment. And for three days, the news teams camped out at Damascus Gate, because if there's going to be a disturbance, it's, it's going to be, be at Damascus there. Gate. And, you know, we got a few pictures of skirmishes and then some of the wise asses on Twitter stepped back 10 feet and then took the picture and the, <laughs> there were there were five times as many news journalists as there were protesters and yeah. and you get the impression that the fifth you know the number of the protesters that they had found were mugging for the cameras well there have been instances where you see people where you see reporters even from outside of this region setting up things yeah. yeah, I mean, listen, I, I spent a couple months working for a local news agency. And I learned a lot about these kind of tricks and games that go on. Because you need compelling you need compelling footage. 
you, you have this guy, right? And, and, and he happens to be walking by, I don't know, the bus that got shut up. And he snaps a picture, right, of, of the bus. You can't see anything. It's a parked bus. There's some cracks in a window. And he puts it up on his, on his Twitter feed or his Facebook page. And he's like, you know, oh, this is the bus 78 that got shot up. That happened in my neighborhood a few years ago. And then you know what happens within 12 seconds, right? 25 news producers quickly send him a message. They comment on his tweet or they, you know, message him in Facebook Messenger and they say, Hi, this is Bob Schmuck from uh, Channel 7 News in Atlanta. Can we use your footage? We'll give you a credit. And to the guy, it's like, I mean, he just put it on Twitter. It doesn't make a difference to him. And like, okay, my name will be in the news in Atlanta, you know. And, and that's what they do. But these people are sitting there scouring social media for these pictures, which they can then dramatize mm-hmm. as, you know, like breaking footage of a parked bus. And it's and when you can't find the thing on social media, because not many people stroll into uh, riots to take 10 second videos to put on Twitter. So you have to find you have to send your guys there. And if there are, there's no one rioting there. So you get some people to. And it's all it's all for the cameras. It's all for the cameras. It's just this. And again, look, I I understand why they're doing it. It moves copy, and I understand why you've got forty people here. It's a great story. It's a great story, from start to finish. So you know this compelling story explains the why the irreligious. Uh, secular world feels they have a, a even the hold. secular world yeah has has a hold on the city and obviously the the main i don't want to say main world religions because i mean you know but the main western hinduism is a big deal right and confucianism doesn't really care about jerusalem either but you know at least in terms of the big three for the west so obviously they all have their claims here everybody's got a finger in 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 the pot here finger in the eye of jerusalem <laughs> well, that's kind of what happens out of it. So so I think this answers our question, why is Jerusalem different than any other divided city? So we see how Jerusalem winds up being special and sacred to everybody. There's a religious claim, or there's at least a narrative that speaks to people for Jerusalem. But... Why is Jerusalem special to us, to the Jews? That is something we have not touched on. And we'll get into it in our next segment. See you after the break. And we're back with a special guest in the studio. You see, we left off with a cliffhanger. Why is Jerusalem special to the Jews? And the truth is that's a darn hard question to answer because... Which Jews? Right. You see... Two Jews, three opinions. So now we have three Jews, which is probably like eight opinions. Yeah, because it it goes pretty exponentially. Uh, As anyone who's ever taken more than one cab in israel can tell you (laughs) so we figure we'd start by asking these jews why is jerusalem special and we decided to bring in an outside voice my brother say hello could i could have had any name i could have been any identity and it would have been amazing oh we have harrison ford on our show (laughs) there you go there's a man with personality there you go all right harrison my brother Why is Jerusalem special to you? I don't think that Jerusalem today is any more special than any other city in this country or any country, for example. I just think that because of the history that is in this city, it is special. Expand on that, because I don't think that you really believe that New York is just as special as Yerushalayim. No, Yerushalayim is special, but not because of what Yerushalayim is today. If the government blew itself up today, I would I would sleep the same amount of time tonight, regardless. That's because you don't sleep. <laughs> My point being that I would not lose any more sleep over the fall of the Israeli government because I think that it's just any government. That's not what I find special. 
Whatever Jerusalem is today is not very special. Isn't this ground so special, getting to walk on the streets of this holy city? No, I feel like I'm walking on the streets of any other annoying hill in the world. What's that history that's important? Everything I come from. Which is what? Judaism. This is weird. This This is our central base. What do you mean by central base? This is the Jewish city. It always has been and it always will be. Not before. Well, it hasn't always have been, I guess, because we've had to fight for it a few times. What makes it the Jewish city? Is it that the temple is here? Yeah, I think that's a pretty damn good place to start. (laughs) Okay. Okay. The Mishkan was in Shiloh. The tabernacle was in Shiloh. Would you say that Jerusalem and Shiloh are the same? No. Why are they different? Shiloh is definitely a very special and holy city, but it was it's not the home base for all of Jewry since 2,500 years ago. Uh, let me ask you a question. Is it that because the temple was here, Jerusalem is special, or was the temple built here because Jerusalem has something to it? Well, see, that's the thing. I think that the temple was obviously built here for a reason as opposed to anywhere else. Right. And But I, when I think of the importance of today's day and age, I think it's the fact that the temple was here previously. Mm-hmm. Which obviously would end up resulting back to why that happened, but I don't think anyone in today's modern day and age really taps in or even understands what that is. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. If anyone wants, I'm hired by the hour. You could call my agent. Thank you, Harrison, for coming on. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You don't always get to interview famous movie stars. Yeah. Who are also your brother. And could be anyone else. You know, I think that my brother Harrison over there actually hit on a lot of the points that we wanted to bring up. Should we say his real name? Sure, we could. Foley. Yeah, <laughs> we did it. His, his real name is Foley, nickname for Raphael. He's a good kid. So, it's funny that, you know, almost immediately he hit on the difference of what Jerusalem means and the actual city that's here. Hmm. Because one of the funny places that distinction gets blurred is what we know as Jerusalem syndrome. Oh, I wouldn't know anything about that. Well, I hope you wouldn't know anything about that experientially, but I think we all know that it exists. Uh, there's there's a full ward in the Jerusalem Psychiatric Hospital of yeah. people who, who suffer from this. So I was sitting in a cafe on Jaffa Street one day, and this tall, good-looking guy walks by carrying this big, heavy, wooden cross. He was a big guy. This is a cross that this guy could actually be crucified on. (laughs) A hot day, walking down the street. He put it down to wipe his forehead, but he looked happy about it. He was bearing his cross. Um, In the middle of the street, which is, you know, kind of... A common occurrence here, surprisingly, but that's kind of the point. Uh, Jerusalem syndrome is a syndrome where people will come to the city and begin to go psychotic, generally with religious uh, themes to that psychosis. They imagine that they're the Messiah, whether the Jewish Messiah or the Christian Messiah. They imagine that they're Eliyahu the prophet elijah announcing or that they're a prophet at all right and and they they go mad they really do for years i thought it would be really funny for purim to rent a white donkey and dress you know pretty biblical and ride down the streets proclaiming that i was a prophet and one year i was like totally get hauled into a mental word for that right and then i was like thinking of doing it and you know looking around like okay where can i rent the donkey and then it occurred to me no one would find it funny they would just assume i had jerusalem syndrome and i would be taken in you might get off the hook for being poor you know this happens to me every year around Purim, where i'm on the bus and i'm looking at people going is that for real or is that a costume <laughs> well I try each year to do something where somebody who actually knows me wouldn't recognize me. And the first year we were here, I dressed up ultra-Orthodox, like Haredi, hmm. Haredi. And I went places, and people would just talk to me in Yiddish. I had to explain to them it was a costume. They didn't believe me. But at any rate, Jerusalem Syndrome is, is something which is pretty unique 
to the point where, I mean, they named it after the city. And it really only occurs here. I've never heard of it happening in Tel Aviv. I've never heard of it happening anywhere outside the world. I mean, there are plenty of psychotic... Look, I... Simon and Garfunkel once saying how, you know, the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls. And, and I met quite a few people... And tenement halls. Yes. And they echo in the wells of silence. But the, the, the point is, I look, I met a lot of people in New York who, who would tell me that they're prophets. But it wasn't because of New York. It was because they had done a lot of drugs. Who knows? Maybe they were prophets. But it, it wasn't tied to a place. And over here it is. And and actually, in, in prep for this segment, I we, we looked up different places that have syndromes named after them. I had no clue that there were other places like this. The thing is, there really aren't. Because of those other place name syndromes, none of them are really about the place. Except one, which is about how the place doesn't really match up to people's expectations for it. And that's what's known as Paris syndrome, where people travel to Paris and and they kind of get there and go, this is it. Like this is, you know, the city of lovers and and of light. And and that's the Eiffel Tower, seriously. And and it starts out it starts out with giddiness and then ends with disillusion and nausea. And Japanese tourists are particularly vulnerable. It's this disappointment. So it's not really something that Paris causes or does as much as it's paris doesn't match up to your previously formed expectations people bump up against the reality of paris after being hyped up through the myth of paris yeah i mean look my brother that we just had on here actually went through paris and his reaction to it was that is one of the most horrible places i have ever been and i never want to go back and it's expensive that was one of his complaints that there was just nothing enjoyable about it, and whatever you could find that wasn't so bad, you'd have to sell a kidney for. I actually just had Shabbos lunch with a former Parisian who spent the majority of Shabbos lunch talking about how bad Paris is now. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the only other syndrome with a place name that has anything to do with the place it's named for. Other ones include Stockholm Syndrome, which many people have heard of where captives begin to identify with their captors. There's London syndrome, which is the opposite, where captives become belligerent to their captors to a... Which sounds sensible to me. Right, but it's meant to describe like in ways that are courting, like in stupid ways where you're like asking to be hurt. So they'll be like, everybody hands mm-hmm. up. And you'll be like, no, <laughs> hands up or we'll shoot, drop dead. So they gave that a name. And this one actually has what to do with... That just sounds like British humor. Well, it was done... It was... Drop dead. This was... The the name was coined uh, after the Iranian embassy hostage-taking in London in the early 80s. Hmm. And many people pointed out that it just sounds like typical British behavior. Yeah. (laughs) But... Or at least typical London behavior. But okay, that's another one. But again, it's not... You know, people who go to London don't start acting this way. There's there's Stendhal syndrome, otherwise known as Florence syndrome, quoting uh, the world's repository of knowledge, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Florence syndrome is a psychosomatic disorder that causes rapid heartbeat, dizziness, fainting, confusion, and even hallucinations when an individual is exposed to an experience of great personal significance, particularly viewing art. This is something which many people can experience in a very powerful moment where you you get this not reaction but you react to to the power of the moment you're in somebody who hears a particularly searing piece of music yeah i was listening to the bso play britain's spring symphony and it felt like i had been overwhelmed by a wave and was drowning under the water i i thought i was going to die and it wasn't unpleasant there you have it and, and there are a few others that, you know, we don't have to get into. But Jerusalem is, is unique in which it, it itself causes this reaction, this syndrome, this near psychotic, if not actually psychotic, break. And I found it very interesting, very much like my brother pointed out, that I don't find much special about modern day Jerusalem in terms of the experience of being here. I'm always struck that when tourists come, and they're they're very moved by the city. They want to go to 
the Kotel, the Western Wall, and they want to go to, you know, all these different places that are significant. And, and I'm always struck by, you know, I, I live here, and I never really care to go to any of these places at all. Well, it's like if you lived in Disney World, you wouldn't be on the rides all the time. Well, that's the thing. And so it's, it's great you put it that way, because I, I feel that in a lot of ways, the city is almost like a theme park. I think for religious people, it, it really is. I remember actually once you and I were together on Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. We were we were praying by uh, our Rebbe. In the old city. In the old city. And, and, and we actually, the, the prayers were held in a cafe, which was built in a way that it overlooks the Temple Mount. Gorgeous view. Great place to pray. And in the middle of the day, I was looking down at the plaza below in the old city, the Jewish quarter. And I'm noticing there's a whole bunch of tourists, mostly Orientals. And it occurred to me that the tour guide was a genius. He's like, if you want to see Jerusalem, you have to see it on the on the holy day, mm. you know. And so that's where he was bringing them and why. And I was struck by how I'm literally... At best, let's call it a exhibit in a museum. And at worst, I'm like the costumed Mickey Mouse in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And it was horrible. You've been co-opted into... Some other person's kind of, you know, religious tour where I'm part of the scenery. And this is supposed to be my mm. city. Yeah. I hate the theme parkiness that Jerusalem uh, offers its tourists. I'm not saying, look, we're happy that they come. I'm not going to complain. But I, I don't like the experience of being something to observe. <laughs> I, I like to roll with that and then pop out of it and surprise people. In what way? So, like, I run into Italian tour groups all the time mm-hmm. in the old city. I see them looking at me, and they're looking at me as this example Jerusalemite with my yarmulke and my beard and i start speaking with them in italian they're like whoa hey that's different and usually it's to say get the hell out of the road i'm trying trying to drive here (laughs) i mean uh, yeah there's 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 something enjoyable and kind of not breaking the fourth wall but breaking the stage to these people and like kind of pointing out we're humans also Uh, a lot of what we discussed in the previous segment about the news and how things are, you know, made out to be what they're not. So that's that's a huge part of this as well, where, like, I point out to people, you know, Jerusalem is not really a war zone. It's not? No, not at all. Like, we're actually people here, and we live, you know, normal lives. We send our kids to school and go to work, pay water bills. It's a city. Yeah, and, and people are shocked. Though in my neighborhood, we do have like donkeys and camels and horses walking through. <laughs> that is true. You guys do. Actually, one of my one of my favorite eye-opening wake-up calls where I live was watching a flock of sheep be shepherded down Derech Hebron, which is amazing. a which is the in-city segment of Highway 60, the main north-south highway for the Judean mountains. Were we together for that, or did we see it separately? We saw it separately. <laughs> That's so funny. It's happened more than once. I've seen it again. I'm sure. I mean, yeah. they probably have to. But do the that first time the I saw it, I mean, it was literally a hundred sheep walking down <laughs> wow. a sidewalk on a six-lane street, <laughs> and, and and it was just this wonderful contrast. It's like, well, that that is Jerusalem, <laughs> and it is. So. Coming around a bit and getting a bit more in-depth. Jerusalem has chosen to be Jerusalem, not by God, which is something which people either don't know or don't realize. Hmm. Jerusalem was chosen by David. And, and the funny thing is, if you look through the five books of Moses, you will see there's no mention of Jerusalem at all, Well, except one. All the way back in the beginning, Abraham goes to meet uh, Melchizedek. 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 (laughs) Ask me how I know that. Because one night at 2 in the morning, I was in a hotel room here in Israel, and there's nothing to do. So I turned on the TV, and it was pirating 
the feed going to the U.S. Army troops stationed in the Persian Gulf. And there was a preacher there named Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar? Yeah, he's a, he's, he's, you got to look him up. He speaks almost as well as Farrakhan. The satanic Jews that control everything and mostly everybody. That booming voice and the, you know, the, the pauses, the cadence, it's, it's incredible. So he was giving a whole speech about why it's important that you give him all your money in the guise of tithes. So Reverend Creflo was talking about tithes. Mm-hmm. And so he was explaining that Abraham gave his tithes to Melchizedek. And at the time I went, who? What the hell is that? And then I figured out he meant Melchizedek. And so now I know how to say Melchizedek in, in uh, Americanese. Creflo-ish? No, I think that's just... I mean, look, this happened to me another time also with a uh, nice Roman Catholic from, uh, I think, Fort Lauderdale, somewhere in Florida. And we were working, we were working together at a uh, Red Cross aid distribution center mm-hmm. in, in giving New York. Giving out blood? No, we were giving Is out Is this the food. opposite of a blood libel? Nope. It's like the Jew isn't taking blood, he's giving it out. Nope. Although that would have been funny. It was a food distribution center after Hurricane Sandy flattened a good portion of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And he sees me wearing a kippa and he like sidles up to me and he goes, Zippera. And I said, what? And he goes, uh, Bizalily. What? what? And he did this like three or four more times. Then it occurred to me he was just listing people in Tanakh. <laughs> it doesn't mention Jerusalem anywhere, save that one place. Well, all it it's says, mentioned obliquely, repeatedly. Well, that's what I'm saying. All, but it, no, no, no. You're, you're. That's not true. All it says is that. When the time comes, it's talking about the pilgrimage festivals. So it says you should go to the place that will be chosen. And I actually noticed today, it does not say the place that I will choose. Mm-hmm. It says the place that will be chosen, which is what happens. God doesn't choose it. If you follow the story, that's actually what takes place. Weirdly enough, the impetus to make a temple at all comes from David building a palace. And then it says how David said, he goes to the prophet and he says, well, I have a home now, but God doesn't. The ark is still in a temporary dwelling. It's it's being housed in a tent. What does he mean having a home for God? So how does I've, that make any sense? I don't think the idea is a place as much as it's, you're going to stick God in a place? Right. So, I mean, we've, you know, we've talked about this before. And the question was always like, how do you build a home for God? God is everywhere. But the funny thing is, so are we. Everywhere? We are, I wouldn't say necessarily everywhere, but the truth is with the modern world and the wonders of the internet, you can be anywhere you really want to be. But home is the place which you're a part of. And where your relationships are, ah. and which is yours, as opposed to a place you're you're in, it's the place that's yours. I think David's point is part of what he realized that his home is not just okay. Now I have a permanent dwelling. I'm sure he lived in a in a home before this one. It was if this is my place, if this is a home with the imagery that comes along with that word then I want to build one for the presence of God. Not so that that's the only place he would be. We're not locking him up. But that there is that place for that level of relationship and connection, if you will. And even then, by the way, even with this realization, he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't actually do it. He's told by the prophet, God says that he's not the right person for the job. Hmm. And not only that, he doesn't choose anything about where. It's not till later in another completely different story, David makes a mistake and he's told he's going to be punished for it. And he's given three options. He gets to choose his punishment and he chooses the one that's totally dependent on God as opposed to intermediaries. 
and and halfway through this this punishment it suddenly stops at a particular place and david sees this well, I'm not sure what the word would be, this this extra level of care or concern or response and where God goes above and beyond in having mercy and stopping this plague early. And David sees the place where that happens as expressive of that level of relationship. And so mm-hmm. then and there chooses that point to be the the, the place of the temple. Amazingly, that place until that point was a threshing floor for someone's granary. So, so that's where Jerusalem is, is chosen. And it seems a bit arbitrary. This is begging a question. Mm-hmm. Why would David choose this place? Or why would Hashem choose this place to stop the plague? Is it just, okay, now I feel like stopping? Or... Does that place have some reality to it, some some essence to it? So let's start with the with the Avot, with our patriarchs. Yaakov, Jacob, is on his way out of the land of Israel, leaving home, going to his uncle Levan, and he is forced to, to stop in this place. Mm-hmm. And he lays down, and he has a dream, an amazing vision of a ladder connecting the earth and the heavens. And that's here. That's right where the temple is built. Right. Okay, it doesn't say that in the verses there, but that's brought out in the rabbinical commentary on this episode. Okay, before that, you have Yitzhak, Isaac, who's bound there at that location. Right. How do they know to put the altar there? Because they found the ashes of Isaac in that location. Obviously, on a literal level, that makes no sense at all. So what these what these midrashim are doing are they're bringing out the larger significance of Jerusalem. Okay, one generation back from there, Avraham, who of course did the binding of Isaac, but independent of that, after the First World War, Avraham meets up with Melchizedek. How did you say it before? Melchizedek. Thank you. <laughs> he meets up with Melchizedek. 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 mel He meets up with Mel. There you go. <laughs> After the First World War, Avram meets up with Melchizedek. And Malkitzedek is called Melech Shalem, the king of Shalem, which is Jerusalem. 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 So it's pre Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Beyond that, they meet up in a place called Emek Amelech, which the Malbim understands to be a near. area near Jerusalem. Right. But the point of that is that it's that moment where Avraham comes into his own. He's acknowledged by all these kings as, you're the guy. He's the guy. You're the one taking creation forward from here. Malkit Sedek, who is understood midrashically again as Shem, the son of Noah, has been the, the bearer of that ancient tradition from Adam to Noah. And now he's handing it off to Avraham. So the kings say, you're the king. And Malkit Sedek says, you're the Kohen. You're taking this forward from here. So the point is that that takes place here. Yes, in connection with Yerushalayim. So going back even before that, you know, Malkitzedek is Noah, big step in creation. Before that, you have Adam, Adam. So we're told in the Midrash again that Adam is formed from the dirt of that place, the place of the Mizbeach, of the altar. Of course, there's another Midrash that says that he's not formed from dirt from one place. Rather, he's formed from dirt from the four corners of the earth. But if you were wondering where those four corners are, they're going to be equidistant from the center. And just look on any map produced by Europe. What's in the center? Jerusalem. Yep. Okay, so that's not a proof, but the, the universality is impressive. So even before that, how do you go before Adam? Creation. Creation. So... The Evan Shtia, the foundation stone, is understood 
again, midrashically, to be the... The rock around the, which the rest of the planet... The, the uh, stardust that was somewhat more massive than the other stardust around it, so it attracted the other stuff, and from that the planet was formed. So obviously that midrash and all these midrashim are after the fact. So we aren't doing history here, but what is being brought out here is that the choice of Jerusalem isn't a historical accident, however meaningful that accident might be. You know, the plague stops there. That's a big deal, right? But that the significance of Jerusalem is built into our planet. It's built into the, the space in which we evolve. Right. It, it's a part of the human story. So in that sense, everyone really does have a claim to Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that everyone gets to do whatever the hell they want here. Quite the opposite. It's about everyone wanting what is ultimate and coming together around that. We're talking about all the nations of the earth coming together on Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, mm-hmm. <laughs> to Jerusalem, to the temple. And as the prophet says, Ki beti beit yikare lechol ha'amim. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Right, which is a very universal view of Jerusalem, which many people have taken into all sorts of crazy places. But as in, in light of what we are pointing out... Are you calling me crazy? No, I'm calling the people who say that you know Judaism is supposed to be social justice warrior liberal humanism are a little crazy, or, or really a lot crazy. But the universality of it is not this idea of we're going to tell the world how to be better, you know, because we're better. But it's this idea of the this global relationship between God and creation. If this is the place where that is manifest, then that has to be for everybody. Yeah. So you brought out a perspective which is enmeshed in the choice of Jerusalem from the human side. And I've tried to bring out how it's not not just an arbitrary choice from the human side, not just an interpretation of signs from heaven, but that it's built into the fabric of creation. You know, somebody with a better sense of timing and puns would have said it's built into the bedrock of creation. Okay, thanks. (laughs) So maybe I can bring together the two perspectives. Mm -hmm. There's this amazing midrash, which I saw in a book which is out of print by Rav Daniel Sperber. And he brings a midrash from uh, Tanhuma, uh, Shemot, Pekude, sections one and two. Merov Shalmata Asa Lamala. So, because of God's love for the Jerusalem below, He made a Jerusalem above. Incidentally, in Masechet Chagiga, the Jerusalem above is placed in the fourth heaven, which is the middle of the seven heavens. So again, Jerusalem is in the middle. It's not just in the middle of maps; it's also in the middle of the heavens. Okay, so. God loves Jerusalem below, so he built a Jerusalem above. The Jerusalem above is a function of the Jerusalem below. That's very different from how people usually view these things. It's like well, To God. most people, we say, uh, so in heaven. Uh, uh, We're marionettes. God's pulling earth. the strings. Right. And what's done up above has its results below. This goes in exactly the opposite direction. Okay, so the Midrash continues and says that the Jerusalem above and the Jerusalem below are built as one and that they're connected. And as a result of this, the Shekhinah, the presence of God, will not go, will not return to the Jerusalem above, which is destroyed just as the Jerusalem below is destroyed. It will not return to the Jerusalem above until the Jerusalem below is rebuilt. Wow. So the ultimate point of this that I want to bring out is that Jerusalem is Jerusalem because it's chosen together. It's shared together. It's our home together. That the two levels of heaven and earth are interconnected in Jerusalem. 
I think that's a fair and erudite way to put into words what Jerusalem means to the Jews and to the world. You know, I think that's the appeal that Jerusalem has to people because it's the place where heaven and earth come together. It's the place where the relationship between man and God has a home. And in that sense, Jerusalem calls to everyone. And with that, I suppose we should end off the way that Jews end off just about everything. And that is with a prayer. L'shana haba'a b'yerushalayim. B'yerushalayim ha Next year in a rebuilt Jerusalem. Here it echo through the canyons of your mind Until you reclaim the things you left behind It's telling you this just might be the time Jerusalem is calling Jerusalem is calling